Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My first guest today is Dr. Kathy Guthrie. Dr. Guthrie is an Associate Professor of Higher Education in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at Florida State University. In addition to teaching in the Higher Education Program, Dr. Guthrie also serves as the Director of the Leadership Learning Research Center and coordinates the Undergraduate Certificate in Leadership Studies, which is a partnership between the College of Education and the Center for Leadership and Social Change. Her research focuses on the learning outcomes and environment of leadership and civic education, online teaching and learning, and professional development for student affairs professionals. Dr. Guthrie is an editorial board member of the Journal of Leadership Education and the Journal of College and Character. Currently, Dr. Guthrie is the Associate Editor of the New Directions and Student Leadership Series and Editor of the Contemporary Perspective in Leadership Learning Book Series. Dr. Guthrie received her Ph.D. in Educational Organization and Leadership from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2008. My second guest is Dr. Dan Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. He received his doctorate in Curriculum and Instruction, as well as an MA in Political Science from the University of South Florida, and a BS in Communication Studies from Florida State University. Dan has published more than 30 articles and book chapters on leadership education and assessment. He's also presented research and facilitated workshops on leadership pedagogy, curriculum, and course design around the world. Additionally, Dan is a co-chair of the International Leadership Association's Leadership Education Academy and former chair of their Leadership Education Member Interest Group, vice chair of the Collegiate Leadership Competition, associate editor of the Journal of Leadership Studies, and former secretary of the Association of Leadership Educators. Welcome, Kathy and Dan. Hi. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Well, uh, so I just wanted to, uh, so the discussion that will follow is the first in a series of five, episode on, five episodes on Kathy and Dan's new book, The Role of Leadership Educators Transforming Learning. As the title indicates, the book was designed for the listeners of this podcast, Leadership Educators. Today's conversation will introduce, the con- will introduce concepts presented in the book, and I'll push for some themes and big picture thoughts. The next episode is going to dive into professional identity, into the professional identity of leadership educators and available resources. The third episode will be an in-depth discussion of making leadership education learner-centric. The fourth episode will focus on the characteristics of distinctive leadership programs and will conclude with a conversation on assessment and pedagogy and and, uh, wrap up with some final thoughts as well. So... Let's get to know Kathy and Dan a little bit, and then we'll dive into dive into the role of leadership educators. So, Kathy, if the Chicago yeah. Cubs and the Tampa Bay Lightning were falling from the building and you could only save one, which one would you pick? Oh, you know, that's really tough because right now, you know, the Lightning are, are going forth, right? But I would have to say Chicago Cubs. I am a diehard Cubs fan, grew up, and have so many great memories of with my my grandma, actually, um, and my mom going to baseball games and going up to Chicago to see the Cubs. And so good old Wrigley Field, I'd have to say Cubs all the way. <laughs> yeah, so I was uh, very pleased to see as a lifelong Atlanta Braves fan, the Braves pulled it out late against the Cubs last night. But I uh, yeah, grew up. I did. <laughs> the Cubs yeah. have always been a distant second in my heart. I grew up watching Harry Carey on WGN in the yeah. afternoons. And then my partner, yeah. Uh, their grandfather was like the world's biggest Cubs fan. He was buried with his Cubs hat on. Um, oh, nice. So I have a real, uh, real affection for the Cubs. Um, yeah. So, 
yes. I did see that game last night. I was like, oh. But, yes, and Lightning have a huge game tonight, so we shall see if we can continue to move forward with the Lightning. But, yeah, oh, very fun. I also have a dream that the Lightning and the Winnipeg Jets are going to play for the Stanley Cup, and it will be, like, <laughs> the most NHL thing that will have ever happened as, you know, any sort of major major sports market has been eliminated and we are right. now in Tampa and Winnipeg, you know, where you know right. that, like, every sports commissioner is like, oh, gosh, I hope, you know, New York and L.A. or New York and, and Chicago right. play, and, and NHL's got Winnipeg and Tampa. In uh, Tampa, right? Yeah, that's really what I'm hoping for. I think that'd be, yeah, I think that that would yeah. be really fun. So, Dan, I know that you, I know that you uh, grew up and spent most of your life in Florida, and now you live in and now you live in Maine. So tell me about uh, the adjustment to living in Maine after, uh, you know, spending most of your life in the Sunshine State. Sure. Well, uh, I, I certainly do share the uh, the, the Tampa uh, sentiment there with uh, being a Lightning fan. It's nice to see them in the playoffs and, and grew up a Bucks fan uh, back, back in the orange and white days. Um, and it was a real struggle there for, <laughs> for many years. Uh, back in the, we'd, in we'd the yuck the days. Yeah, we'd watch the we'd watch the uh, the Bears come down and the Vikings come down and pretty much everyone else in that uh, in that conference and just beat the snot out of them in the in the 80s and 90s and then finally we uh, picked up a bunch of Florida State players and and some players from Miami and uh, then we went to the we were in the playoffs uh, most of my my high school years and and uh, you know won the big one in, in 03 so. Um, but that was a lot of fun. You know, born, born in Tampa. My grandfather was born in Tampa. Um, so spent most of my, uh, spent my whole childhood down there and, uh, until moving up to Tallahassee for, for undergrad and moving around the state a bit uh, until uh, coming back to Tampa to, to do all my graduate work and, uh, and then looking for that, looking for that first tenure track job. Um, and, you know, when I, I remember coming up for my interview uh, up here at, at, uh, at Southern Maine, and it was in December. And uh, it was a few days, uh, I'm going to say about a week before, uh, you know, Christmas time um, in 2011, and it got down to eight degrees. <laughs> and I thought, what am I, what am I doing? But the community and the uh, the collegiality and just everybody that I met, it really, you know, it was a no-brainer that it was you know, kind of the, the perfect fit for what I wanted to do with with my career. And um, you know, I I certainly had expected the cold. One of the biggest shocks for me uh, was when it got down to, um, you know, December, uh, late November, and the sun started going down really, really, really early. Uh, not only are we uh, are we up north here, but we're we're pretty far east. And so uh, then I reflected a little bit on after we moved here about when I had come up for my interview, um, and one of the one of my now colleagues was going to pick me up from the airport, and um, you know, I checked in when I was, uh, you know, on my layover coming in, and she said, oh, you know, I'll take you on a quick drive through uh, the old port in, in Portland uh, when you get in. Uh, it'll be really pretty right before sunset. And I'm thinking to myself, what is she talking about? Um, and then there was a slight delay, and so she didn't pick me up until about 4, maybe 4.15 from the airport. And as I was waiting the ground transportation, the sun was going down. <laughs> I thought, oh, my goodness. And so we go from, you know, about nine-hour days um, in, you know, the dead of winter to um, about 18-hour days um, as we get to the, you know, the solstice and uh, in the middle of 
uh, at the end of June and July. And so, you know, that was probably the biggest shock was those short days. And But, my gosh, it's a pretty here. And um, just be having access to the ocean and the rivers and the hiking and the mountains and everything. Um, and there's no traffic. I don't miss that in Tampa, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> So, and just a sense of community. So it's really been a, a great transition. But that, that first year, uh, learned how to shovel the driveway and buy a snowblower. Um, and those things were, were something else. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Uh, yeah, different kind of beaches there, uh, for sure. Um, my, for sure. Again, my uh, partner, to refer back to them again, uh, worked in Acadia one summer and went up to visit. And I was like, I was like, oh, the beach is there, you know, are we, are we going to swim? And it's like, no, it's way too cold. I was like, I, I like looked at it and was like, oh, that's not happening. Yeah, it's not, not going to be a thing. Yeah, one one time in early August, the water was, I think, you know, we, we got a notice for, you know, checking the ocean temperature because it was pushing 90 degrees, which is pretty uncommon. Um, and they said the ocean temp was, I think, 62 or 63 degrees. And, and it was one of the few times where it was really nice to go out into the water. Um, otherwise, the lakes get up into the high 70s, and that's where people spend the most of their uh, summers. But, you know, the cliffs and then some of the rock formations on the on the ocean are just breathtaking. Yeah, I actually I spent a, a summer at the, uh, the language school at Middlebury uh, in Vermont, and uh, one time it was like 85 degrees. I was, I'm from South Carolina, grew up down here, and people were like dying. They were like, oh, my gosh, this is fun. Like, I was like... Mm, this is like I don't know late April. I don't know. I don't know what y'all. <laughs> I don't know what this. Yeah. I don't know what this is about. But obviously, if it had, you know if I'd been there in winter and it had been you know four degrees with you know a negative thirty wind chill, <laughs> it would have been really going the opposite direction. So uh, that's right. Anywho, all right. So Kathy, in preparation for this podcast, uh, I know last time we had you on, we talked a little bit about Chicago pizza. And you mentioned a capacity to talk about Chicago pizza forever. That's a quote. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, you know, charge you with something that I know can be difficult sometimes for, uh, that I know can be difficult sometimes, going to really charge you with, uh, for, to be succinct here. So if you were forced in one sentence to make an argument about why Chicago pizza is best, what would you choose? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I could. I, could. I have a slight obsession with Chicago pizza, and it's even – since I've moved away from Chicago area, I think it's gotten more so of an obsession. But, you know, Chicago pizza, it's funny because I would say if Chicago pizza is like 3 to 10 inches in height per, per slice, and it's pure perfection. And I say probably there's two main reasons. One is the crust is always buttery and flaky. And two, because Chicago pizza, the sauce and toppings are on top and the cheese is in the middle, so it's kind of like a flipped pizza for those who don't know Chicago style pizza besides it's being really thick but the cheese is in the middle which allows it to melt to perfection and not burn so it's like this gooey yummy yes I, w- I don't want to say mess it can be messy but it's just it is perfection so that is my succinct the the three to ten inches of perfection that it's buttery and flaky and that the cheese is in the middle was that succinct enough? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say, I, you know, it's hard to sometimes convert, uh, convert conversation to sentences. I think you did well. Maybe didn't quite get to one <laughs> sentence, but I, I think that that was nope. good. 
this guy I went to college with used to get pizza. He was from Chicago, and he used to get, I went to college in South Carolina, and he used to get pizza, like, shipped down with dry ice from Chicago like, yes. once a year. And I was like, what in the <laughs> world? Yeah. What a commitment. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, Dan, I would be remiss uh, if you if I did not ask you our signature question. Kathy has already answered this once on uh, when she was on the podcast before, so I'm going to turn to you to ask a, a nearly impossible question. Uh, present company and this book notwithstanding, what is the best book about leadership? All right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, uh, a twist on that. I'm going to say my favorite book about leadership is about followership, and so I'm going to go with, uh, with Arashalov's The Courageous Follower. And um, really, I really dove into that over the, um, over the last, last few years. had an opportunity to see him speak um, several years ago at an ALE conference and, you know, was really starting to take that in and you know, coming over to the, to the followership side um, as I've, you know, been teaching uh, leadership over here at, at USM for the last, the last few years. And, you know, probably uh, one of the most interesting things that, that really made me, a, uh, I guess, a, a courageous follower of, of, of Ira's work was, uh, you know, seeing him at, a, at an ILA conference um, about a year ago um, on a panel, and, and he asked an interesting question to the crowd, and he said, hey, how many of y'all are, are the top dog in your organization? You know, everyone reports to you. You know, there's about 100 people at this, at this panel presentation, and like, you know, three or four people raised their hand. And uh, he said, all right. He says, uh, how many of you are not? You know, and of course, the rest of the crowd puts their hands up, and um, he said, so why are we spending all this time on leadership development? Why don't we spend some more time on followership development? You know, and thinking about that really, um, you know, really kind of changed uh, almost a paradigm shift for, for me and, and how I uh, was approaching, you know, so I reread, I went back and reread the book and actually have used it in um, a couple courses over the last few years and, and most uh, in particular, uh, I, I coached the team for three years uh, in the collegiate leadership competition. Uh, which is a you know an up and coming uh, a group that you know we they piloted the program about three years ago um, at uh, John Carroll University in Ohio with with seven universities participating and I think there was almost 45 universities and colleges that participated this year um, at at five different regions around around the U S and you know the students um, that participated they they couldn't say enough about about that book um, and I agree uh, because you know we're we're trying to teach people. Uh, and, and through that through that book, it's how do you ask those tough questions how do, um, to your leader, uh, to the person, the people in charge that are making those decisions? How do you challenge those decisions? How do you do it with with tact and with care, and um, and, and approach those situations, you know, to, to the best of your ability? Because we're all working for the same thing. We're, you know, we've got the same mission, the same vision, uh, the same goals, the same project we're working on. You know, for all part of the same organization and sometimes that can be really difficult if um, you know the leaders doing some things that you know you're not you're not entirely sure of and uh, or, or that you want to provide some feedback on and some constructive criticism and some of those critical thinking skills and I, I really love the way that that Charlotte tie, ties that together uh, in the book um, and uh, you know I'm looking forward to finding some more creative ways to, to teach some of that content uh, in the class, and, and I'd say too that probably one of the, the biggest takeaways after using the book for the last two years with the uh, collegiate leadership competition uh, students is is how much they got from it in uh, that 
shaped their ability to give really on-point feedback to their, uh, to their classmates um, about uh, different things we were doing during practice activities and, and conversations that, that came up um, as they developed uh, and went through their own team norming and development. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I chose that versus Five Dysfunctions of a Team and some other uh, team and, and, and group development type books uh, kind of on a whim. Uh, and then we even had an opportunity to have, uh, to have Ira come and Skype um, into the class uh, last year, and then students love that. So, yeah, just really enjoying that book. And, and uh, I know it's not a leadership book, Miles, but uh, I think it's it, I think it fits, it fits the bill. Okay, perfect, perfect. Well, um, let's, uh, let's pull a sound of music here and go back to the very beginning. Uh, <laughs> how good did... Yeah, very good way to start. So, uh, Kathy, how about how about you uh, start here? And I, I would love to, you know, get an answer from both y'all here. How did y'all? How did how did you get into leadership education? Yeah, you know, and I think one of the beautiful things about Dan and I working together on this book is that we came to it very differently. And as we talk with folks, I mean, we all enter into this profession and this identity as a leadership educator very differently. Mine is probably more. Um, a little bit more traditional. I was a student affairs professional, and so, you know, I even think back to leadership and being involved in leadership education back to my days in 4-H. I was a 4-H person who kind of rose, you know, was in it from starting at eight years old until I went to college and had a lot of opportunity to not only receive leadership education, but then to also train even, you know, at 4-H camp, I was, you know, counselor in training, you know, per uh, staff member. But I would say more, you know, with student affairs, after I got my master's degree at Illinois State University, I actually began working at the University of Illinois, and I was in charge of the Office of Volunteer Programs, but I worked very closely with the Illinois Leadership Center, and so had a lot of connection with them. But I found myself that no matter what role I was in, in student affairs, I was also being a leadership educator. I was asked to do leadership training, leadership development, and very, you know, whether it was time management skills or training leaders how to do their, their position. I mean, I could go on forever, but that was really how I came through leadership education. But then when I was in, as the director of um, Office of Volunteer Programs, I really started focusing on how is leadership service. And so not, not I would say it's, I have expanded that notion beyond servant leadership, but really thinking about it through a framework of service. And then from there, um, actually was hired still in the University of Illinois system to create coursework around leadership and service learning. So I was charged and I spent two years in that clinical faculty role. And in those two years, I developed seven courses that were based in leadership and service learning. And then from there, we came to Florida State University, where I've been for 10 years as the coordinator of the Undergraduate Certificate in Leadership Studies and really have focused all my research in how are we training um, undergraduate students, but then also graduate students, not only how to be you know, leaders, but then also how are they being generative leaders. And so more specifically recently have been um, teaching a class in the, our uh, master's program in higher education on being a leadership educator. And so that has kind of my path was probably a little bit more traditional um, than Dan's, I would say, in, as far as the listeners of this podcast that I did definitely come through 
student affairs and had that aha moment of, well, wow, leadership educator is not just for those who work in the leadership education office, right, or the leadership office, but it's every part of student affairs. Um, and so that's how I kind of journeyed into this role. Awesome. Dan, how about you? Gosh, yeah, I guess there couldn't be more more different, and, and certainly that's one of the interesting uh, themes that I that I found in some of the research I've, I've done, you know, looking at uh, and interviewing others uh, in, in the field. And so I guess um, it began uh, as an undergrad in, at Florida State uh, University. So, you know, that, that's one of the, the fun things that, that Kathy and I share is that FSU connection. And, um, you know, I was very active in student government and Greek life and, um, you know, other types of extracurricular activities there. And... Um, was when I was part of the uh, Interfraternity Council's board, um, there was a, a course that was going to be offered by a team of, uh, it was the Dean of Students and the DPSA and, and the Director of the Union and some other uh, senior administrators. Uh, actually, Don Dalton was on that, uh, was part of that group. Um, and uh, it was going to be called something to the effect of leadership and campus governance. If I remember right, it was offered in either 2000 or 2001, and they reached out to a bunch of student leaders and said, hey, you know, we're going to teach this class. Uh, we think you, you, you should take it. And um, the book was this, that, that Harry Reader, that social change model of leadership development, um, you know, that uh, had, had been published, you know, a few years uh, prior. And we, it was a bunch of campus leaders. And, uh, you know, that was kind of my first taste of leadership in the classroom. Uh, they hadn't even hired Laura Osteen yet. You know, this was uh, a few years, I think, the before her, and you know, we we ended up, I guess, um, doing quasi leadership development with um, our students that were involved in student government. Um, you know, we would do a lot of consensus building and inclusive, you know, processes. Things that you know, when I look back, um, I didn't really realize that um, those processes were you know indicative of what I would you know be teaching many year, many years later. But you know, a lot of great mentors, a lot of good people that were. Um, teaching us and modeling some of that, uh, some of that process and, and some of that work. Um, over the, over the, the following years, I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, so I went to law school for a year. Um, that didn't work out. Um, be, before I took off to law school, I, I worked for the state legislature uh, in Tallahassee for the uh, House uh, Committee on Appropriations. Uh, after law school, I spent some time um, and a little bit in college you know, working uh, at various uh, restaurants and bartending and uh, went into beverage management for a while working at uh, Pro Player Stadium when I was in, uh, down for law school for, for a year and then up at Raymond James Stadium where the Bucks play in Tampa uh, for, for many years uh, bartending there and doing some other, uh, some other work. Worked for uh, John Hancock uh, Mutual Funds at one of their big uh, transfer agent firms in the Tampa area uh, doing quality assurance and, and other work. Um, and really, and while I was at the same time getting my master's uh, at uh, USF in, in political science, worked on a variety of uh, political campaigns, gubernatorial, school board, uh, really wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, uh, but I, I had uh, that experience in politics and, and thought maybe uh, that may be where I end up. And, uh, and then a funny thing uh, happened a few, a few days after I finished my master's degree in uh, political science, my, I got a call from my mom. She said, hey, you never guess what I ran into um, at, at, the, you know, at, at Publix, um, which is our favorite store in, in, in Florida. 
And uh, I said, hey, you said, oh, you know, remember uh, Barbara Goldstein? Um, I used to bowl with her when you were in, you know, when you were in diapers and, uh, you know, you, her son and you were in the same play group or something to that effect. I said, okay, you know, I, I couldn't remember that person. I said, okay, well, well why is that relevant? He said, well, she's, uh, she's the dean of arts and sciences at Hillsborough Community College, and I told her you graduated with your master's, and uh, I guess they need some instructors to teach political science. And she said, would you be interested? And I thought, hmm, that might be, that could be fun. Um, and I had actually uh, went to a uh, political science association teaching and learning conference a year earlier with some graduate uh, stipend uh, for USF and, and had, had thought about it, but, but wasn't sure about teaching at the college level. And to my mom, yeah, sure, you know, put me in touch with, with Barbara. I ended up in the classroom and really uh, found to enjoy it. And within a couple of weeks' time, I started looking at doctoral programs and found myself uh, at lunch with the, the dean at the time. Uh, well, he was the dean of undergraduate studies, Bob Sellens at USF, and was also the interim chair for their doctorate in curriculum and instruction and, uh, and higher education uh, administration program. And he said, hey, you know, I, you know, I was looking at the CV you sent me, and you've got this background of uh, working with, you know, student leadership and, and whatnot uh, as an undergrad. Do you have any interest uh, now that you've been teaching for a semester <laughs> at the community college and teaching leadership? And I said, well, what would that look like? And he says, well, there's a, there's a great book. It's called Exploring Leadership. Uh, I can have a copy sent to you. Um, and a syllabus, the class starts in a few weeks. Does that sound good? <laughs> um, okay, we'll see how this goes. Um, and so I, was, uh, I immediately went to, uh, you know, went to the Google search and was able to find the uh, instructor's manual for that book that was written by, uh, you know, by Julie, Julie Owen and I think Wendy Wagner. And I, I, I later learned that it was, uh, part of a, actually it was on your podcast, Miles, um, I think it was Susan Kamovet was sharing that story, or may have been Julie, that uh, that was part of a, a graduate class uh, that was being taught at University of Maryland where they put that, that guide together. I tell you, that was, my, that was my Bible because I knew I wanted to do uh, experiential activities, um, but really wasn't sure because I certainly didn't want to uh, be up there with a PowerPoint to teach a leadership class. And, you know, th those were some of the things that really helped develop me early on was, okay, I'm going to set up this class like, you know, in a square or in a circle because it's got to be discussion-based and, um, you know, some of those, those activities about, you know, getting buy-in from the students and, you know, how do we make this the best class ever and, um, you know, really modeling that, that discussion-based approach early on. And um, before I know it, I was teaching this, uh, you know, introduction to leadership. I think it's called Leadership Fundamentals. Um, at, at USF every semester and uh, had an opportunity to transition uh, to other classes and, you know, serendipity uh, worked out and then I found myself identifying as a leadership educator and looking for a job in the field. So, um, you know, and, and through my doctoral work we had to take, uh, we had to take some courses and another college, I think it was four, 12 credits in another college at the university and uh, I said, well, you know what, I'm really enjoying this leadership uh, stuff. Uh, so why don't I take some courses in the College of Business and to quote for courses over there to kind of shape up, uh, shape out, and round out my uh, my doctoral uh, coursework. And I'm glad that I did because I, I use that all the time along with uh, all the other uh, work 
and then I did in hospitality and finance and uh, and whatnot. So, but my my closest peers, I would say, uh, all through that time were the folks in student affairs uh, when I was working because I was going to them for uh, ideas and, and approaches because uh, I did not have that familiarity working with that population uh, other than when I did so as an undergrad. So that's the short story. <laughs> All right. Great. So um, let's, let's, start, let's start with the role of leadership educators transforming learning. Uh, Maybe, maybe again, we'll, we can uh, we can start with Kathy. What do you um, what inspired what inspired y'all to write this book? Yeah, you know, and it goes back to some of what I was saying and just seeing that there was a gap. You know, specifically, not you know, yes, generally leadership educators. I mean, Dan and I have been talking about that for years. How there isn't you know significant training. There are absolutely opportunities, as we all know of, to get training as leadership educators. But there wasn't a book that could really. I would say expand and contract depending on your experience level. And teaching the class that I had mentioned at Florida State, there was nothing out there that I could really go to that was all-encompassing, that had talked about the role of leadership educators. What did that mean? How do we not only teach, but how do people learn, you know, really leadership? And then also the pedagogy. What are the signature kind of instructional strategies that, we are using or that we should be using and really how can we be intentional about developing programs. And so, and of course, when we, are, when we talk about programs, we're talking about the curricular and the co-curricular. And so how are we, you know, developing learning outcomes and, you know, so all of those things that we talk about in the book and how we should be as we're, we're developing programs. And it was literally like I had this, had talked to a publisher about this opportunity, and I reached out to Dan was like, Dan, you'd be the perfect person to write this book with me. was <laughs> so, Because he is, as you can tell, he's, you know, curriculum instruction and has a very different take on it because I know that my main focus is, you know, in student affairs and co-curricular, even though I do – you know, have and have created all these curricular-based leadership courses, I still always tend to go more towards the co-curricular and thinking how are we creating learning opportunities, not necessarily in the classroom, because yes, classroom, we have a syllabus, we have a structure, you know, and how do we do that, but then also how do we do it very, um, you know, creatively and outside of the classroom, and so how are we doing that, whether it's in residence halls or in student activities, I mean, because there's we're working with leaders nonstop, and so how are we doing that? And so it was that that kind of gap in how do we have something that talks about leadership educators, kind of for leadership educators, by leadership educators, and so forth. And so that was really um, what inspired kind of the conversations. And as I mentioned, Dan and I were having these conversations. It's like, okay, we need to do something with this, right? We need to move forward and actually put all of our passion and all of our, you know, knowledge and all of the collective knowledge of leadership educators into a book where people can actually use it as kind of a, as a go-to, if you, if you will, to help them on their own journeys as leadership educators. Awesome, awesome. So, Dan, how about you? Yeah, that's yeah. I, uh, Kathy did a great job of uh, of summarizing a lot of you know a lot of the impetus there. I, I think too, um, you know, some some of the early work um, you know th- that I did um, towards the end of my doctoral program and and early on the tenure track was really trying to find out what, you know what what were the the major 
components of those gaps and, you know, had, you know, done some focus groups and things and roundtables at, at conferences. And, it, you know, one of the major, um, you, know, uh, you know, gaps there was the knowledge around curriculum and instruction. Um, and you know, it, it just so happened that that was what my, you know, that I had just completed my, you know, my, my studies in. And, um, you know, as I got, and, and that's true too in, in other disciplines, were, you know, that we're not necessarily trained to teach our discipline uh, when we go through our doctoral programs. And, and as I started, you know, meeting uh, many of my peers at, at the university when I started on the, on the tenure track, um, you know, it was very uncommon for anyone to have had a seminar in college teaching or, um, you know, a, a course on curriculum design or anything uh, like that, you know, and, and I found that, you know, what I, I'm very much in the minority because that was such a, a central focus of, of the program that I was doing. And so, you know, that, and, and I remember one, uh, one interview in particular where I was interviewing this, this woman who ran a leadership center at a big university um, and I said, you know, what kind of instructional strategies are kind of your go-tos, um, you know, when you're, when you're teaching class or, or, or running your workshops and your program? And she, she said, well, what kind of instructional strategies are there? You know, and, she, she, uh, and I just thought to myself, you know, there's, that, there's a, quite a gap between what we do, um, not that folks aren't uh, facilitating amazing programs and teaching great classes uh, and they're enthusiastic to do so, but we don't know what we don't know. And um, I wanted to put together um, as part of this, this collection of, you know, what are all the amazing things we could be doing in our, in our courses and in our programs and to provide the, the background for that and examples. And, you know, uh, I wanted to have a desk manual uh, of, that was this amalgamation of all the resources that I had found along the way that, that helped me um, to kind of pay that forward, because if we can increase the capacity of, of leadership educators doing this work, um, you know, around the country and around the globe, then, um, the, you know, we're making a difference. And that was really th that inspiration. And the opportunity to work with Kathy was, was really helpful, too, uh, because of the perspective that she had and the, and the insight there, um, you know, that was uh, just the whole project was, was inspiring, because we knew that we were filling this, this big gap and, and that we would have a lot of a lot of fun writing the book. Okay, awesome. So, um, a question that I I have been uh, I've been puzzled by for a long time and and has come up as a, a theme um, uh, many times in the um, many times in uh, in this podcast and in various conversations. Um, and I know based on the on y'all's responses and on the content of the book that preparing leadership educators is central to the purpose of this project. And so I, I have an understanding of the path for curricular educators, which doesn't always, but typically includes doctoral study. Um, and I'd say it's not a reasonable, reasonable expectation given time constraints and salary limitations for co-curricular educator, co-curricular leadership educators to all hold an earn, an earned doctorate. So um, I think a big question that I, I don't imagine we'll, we'll land on the answer to here and, and, you know, feel free, whoever would like to jump in first, uh, you know, let me know. Um, but what should preparation look like for the co-curricular setting for lead, leadership educators? Because I, I definitely do not, 
I don't know, and I don't know that anyone has a definitive answer on that. So I'm I'm really curious about curious about y'all's thoughts there. Yeah, you know, and this is something that I'm extremely passionate about because there is such a need for it, especially when NASPA and ACPA and the core competencies have leadership as one of those competencies. But that's not something that typically prep programs, graduate prep programs in higher education really focus on. And and that's really the conversation at Florida State is like, this is a core competency and we base all of our courses on the core competencies. So the the master's program, we literally look at the core competencies and say, okay, so how are these, how is our coursework in the master's program allowing students to have, you know, engage with this material to develop these competencies so when they leave, they're the best professionals out there. And leadership was a gap, right? I mean, it was like, oh, well, you just pick up leadership. And it was like, well, no, you don't just pick it up. That's part of the problem with perpetuating, you know, some of the, um, I would say, bad leadership programs that are out there, quite honestly, (laughs) you know, like some that are, you know, not as well, you know, they're well-intentioned, but they will, like, put a speaker and then don't ever follow up with it, and you're really not sure what that speaker, what the point was, right? So we've all had those. I've, I put those on, right? And so really thinking about what the preparation should look like, that we actually have a chapter. This is part of, you know, Dan had started talking about this, that we have a chapter, chapter three, that is all leadership educator resources. And so while it would be great if we could all have you know, all the prep programs have a required course. You know, there are a few that have required courses on leadership development and then also leadership education. So the one at Florida State, we spend some time on personal leadership development, and then it's like, so now let's really focus on the education piece of it. And there's a few. You know, Ohio State has a required course. Maryland has an elective that you can take. But really that's not a traditional course that's offered in prep programs. And so I – love to kind of sing that and shout that from the rooftops about how that is a great, you know, and I understand not every program can do required, but at least make an elective for those who are interested in leadership education. How can they develop that competency as far at a master's level? And I would also say, you know, the resources that we provide in the book, there's a lot there. You know, of course we know the clearinghouse and there's a lot of things that NASPA and ACPA and other you know, student affairs organizations um, are doing for that co-curricular setting. There are also the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association that are getting more focused on higher education and how that looks in co-curricular settings. And so I'd say really trying to seek out those opportunities. But there isn't. I mean, I don't ever foresee, um, you know, for those who can't do doctoral work, but you know, how are we coming to the work, right? And how are we building communities of practice to develop this identity and this role um, as a leadership educator in curricular settings? I just think, you know, leadership is interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, and you think about it, student affairs is also, right? Yes, we have education, but we come at it, you know, we have to know business to understand budgets. We need to know, you know, there's all these other skills. And so I think about, well, how do we come into the work as student affairs practitioners? We should be doing it similarly as leadership educators in drawing upon multiple, you know, frameworks and perspectives and lenses. So no magic bullet. It would be nice, right? But I definitely lean on those core competencies, and that's what I really go back to quite a bit in saying we need to be focused on how are we developing, and again, at a master's level, that, that we are competent, not only in our own leadership development, but in our leadership education of students that we work with, because we're definitely asked to do that on a daily basis. 
I remember my first um, position out as a student affairs administrator, like, okay, you need to do a leadership training. And what did I do? I created a leadership training that would have worked for me. And that was one of, you know, I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I am perpetuating, as John Dugan says, the story most often told. I was totally a part of that, right? And so really thinking about how do we have conversations and, well, what are your learning outcomes? You know, much like you do in the classroom, but do it for a one-hour program. How are we saying what is the learning outcome of this? And then why is a lecture the best way to really teach that, that instructional strategy for that learning outcome. And so just having it slow down a little bit, right, and think about that more intentionally. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so Kathy, quick yeah. follow-up before, before uh, Dan helps to try to tackle this fairly impossible answer. Um, do you think, and, and I, I, don't have an, I, I don't have an opinion on this, and I'm just, yeah. know, I'm just curious, do you think that the, the class that you teach at Florida State, let's just talk about that because that would be, sure. you know, the thing that you would have the most direct information on. Do you think that that is, do you think that that is adequate preparation for someone to move in? You know, if someone has taken that class and they're going out, you know, into the job search, they've completed, you know, a general master's, you know, master's in student affairs coursework, right. and they've completed that class, and now, you know, and now they're interested in a entry-level you know, assistant director or program coordinator uh, position where they're, you know, directly facilitating, you know, a huge part of their job is directly facilitating co-curricular leadership programs. Do you think that that is adequate preparation? I don't. I, I wouldn't say in a silo that is. I think it's a good start. But I think it is just as all professionals, we need to continue to our professional development. And so I think it's a good start, but definitely not the end-all be-all, right? And so as um, we know in student affairs, as you get different jobs and you continue to kind of move along in your career, you need to seek out additional opportunities because that master's degree isn't the end-all be-all, right? And mm-hmm. I, I definitely think that's the, tr- that's the case with leadership. I also th- think since, um, you know, even, you know, leadership is such a kind of, you know, a young, I would say, kind of area that we think about, I would say leadership educators even, you know, younger as a professional role or a professional identity. And so how are we really thinking through that that identity? And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that from the book, but how how is that identity? How do we continue to really think through that? It's, an, it's fascinating. Some of the students that I work with, you know, they they know that they're, they definitely identify as student affairs professionals. When I say, well, do you feel that you're a leadership educator? Only the ones that work in leadership offices feel that they are leadership educators to start with. You know, then we talk about, well, are you training? Are you teaching? Are you, you know, around leadership? And they're like, yes, absolutely. And so then how are we really being intentional that leadership's not an add-on, but it is a core piece of what we do, especially when we're working with students, trying to say, you know, our institutions want leaders of the future, right, global leaders. You look at mission statements, the institutions, higher ed, really needs to do a better job of reclaiming that as this is part of what our role is, is to educate leaders. And so then how are we doing that? And I absolutely, yes, classroom, obviously, I think that is, you know, those who want to pair it with a major, that is, that's a good way of learning leadership, but it's happening every day in co-curricular programming, every single day. So how are we just even being aware and being more intentional about that? So I, I think it's a start but I think we have a long way to go to 
really tap into the potential that we have with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan, what are what are your thoughts here on this? Uh, you know, certainly <laughs> possible question to answer. Right. You know, and and certainly, um, you know, I, I leaned on 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 Kathy quite a bit for you know the experience that she brought to to you know to the our, our writing partnership on uh, on the co-curricular side, having never you know held a role in that um, in that part of the university, but certainly worked closely um, w- with those folks, uh, you, you know, both that that were mentors uh, to me as an undergrad and and alongside them at at, uh, at South Florida and. Um, you know, one of the last things Kathy said was, you know, this idea about them being more more intentional in their work. Um, and I think about when I was at USF, um, part of part of my role uh, while I was a doc student, I worked as a professional academic advisor. Um, I, I worked with the hospitality management program and information technology programs and bridge programs with the community colleges. And uh, the director of our uh, area was this woman, uh, Dr. Jody Conway, and uh, she was an instructor in the master's in student affairs uh, program there. And so we always had students in our office, because uh, we also did first-year academic programs, um, you know, the university experience, first-year experience, and there's programs like that all over the country. Uh, so we had uh, students that were basically our interns. They were working, you know, 20, 20 hours a week to get their tuition waivers. Um, and uh, they also had to teach a class uh, as a TA. Um, alongside an instructor, I think um, at least twice, maybe 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 every semester during their during their time, and uh, they were always vying to uh, be a TA in a leadership class. So I got to work with these students often, and um, it was interesting to see what they were being taught uh, because they were all they all wanted to go into student affairs fields. They wanted to be student activities directors and work in leadership centers or work in housing, uh, residence life, and um, the class that they tended to relate to uh, and really bring to the table when they were facilitating activities and other things was their student uh, development theory course. Um, and that was, you know, I had looked at a little bit of that in my, you know, uh, at the master's level and certainly at the, at the doctoral level and really was trying to make those connections as I was taking courses in college teaching and curriculum design and um, and, and things of that nature, and you know, uh, ed psych and cognitive issues and instruction, and you know, really trying to pair those things. Okay, what do we understand about how students develop at this age, um, with what we understand about teaching and learning, uh, you know, cognitively and psychologically. And so, um, from a co-curricular setting, it was okay. How do we meet these students where they're at with the activities um, that they're engaged in, um, you know, as instructors and as facilitators? And so I kept going. Um, you know, back to uh, to that piece of um, what are the relevant experiences for them um, at that point in their life. And so, you know, it was kind of a, a luck of the draw that I ended up using that Exploring Leadership, you know, book to teach the class. And um, that, we, you know, I, I uh, found a book on, you know, a book of case studies uh, called Day in the Life of the College Student, Uni- uh, College Student Leader by um, uh, Hornack and uh, the other author, um, but it was okay. Let's make sure that these experiences that we that we use are, uh, you know, reflective of and reminiscent of what they're doing. You know, that the case studies are things that go on in the residence halls and in their service club and in their fraternity or sorority or in student government or at their internship versus you know uh, Steve Jobs and, and Jack Welch and their you know eight hundred billion dollar budgets of their companies and things. That's just not going to be the reference point for these students. And so. Um, you know, 
as we prepare folks to work in that work in that setting, okay, how do you because uh, the content is very similar in my opinion between you know what we do in the curricular and the co-curricular, um, and so how do we then facilitate those experiences? Because I think the meaning making is similar. The experiential learning models—they're—they're, they're, you know, we're trying to accomplish the same thing. We're trying to develop leaders, and so how do we build those capacities uh, for those folks, you know, at that level? So, you know, I—I I felt very strongly that in addition to student development theory, that there should be some type of coursework or, or, or preparatory program or, or something um, that just, you know, kind of hammers in that. Um, that process for these aspiring, you know, leadership educators that they understand that bridge between the student development theory and and the um, teaching and learning and educational, you know, theory. You know, why is debriefing important? What is it activating in, in learners' minds that's building those connections and you know, creating new connections and neurons and you know, and all all these types of things because it's it's important. And why does certain instructional strategies, uh, which you know, turn into activities and, and, and programming in the co-curricular setting. Why does some work better than others for leadership education? Um, and, and, that, and that folks that are going into that work understand that. Uh, so, so for me, that, was, um, that, that seems to stick out for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, something for us to, for us to continue to consider. <laughs> um, um, so, Kathy, to, to transition to the book a little bit and sort of the introduction that, that is provided to the book, um, you all really uh, decided to, to up the ante and have two forwards, one from, from Jay Conger and one from Susan Comavez. Um, I, I, know, uh, I know sort of each of you probably have a, a sort of a story to tell about each one of these folks. So um, maybe, Kathy, you can start by telling, you know, how did, how did uh, Susan get involved with, the, with this project? Sure. Well, and I would say that Dan and I, again, the strength, I think, of us co-authoring this book is that we come at it from very different, you know, viewpoints. And so thinking through, like, well, you know, leadership education is not just co-curricular, as you're hearing this, right? And it's not just curricular. You're hearing this, you know, theme throughout what we're saying. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were hitting kind of different populations because I think sometimes, you know, and it, especially in student affairs, you know, I think of, Sometimes we're like, oh, everyone does leadership education and student affairs, right? We're in this, only this kind of group. And, you know, and I would say others do that as well. It's not just us and NASA and, <laughs> and so forth, but, you know, it is, it is real. And so, you know, student Kamavez, we all know that she's really, you know, the, I, I told her once, I said, you're like the godmother of leadership education. She's like, well, I really don't like being called godmother. And I just laughed, but. She really was, you know, her and Danny Roberts were kind of this driving force um, behind leadership education and really the early days of getting it as not only a profession, but as, you know, a professional identity as a leadership educator. And so her work when she was at Maryland and with, you know, the clearinghouse is just incredible. And so what better person to kind of have that, that voice right? And Jay comes from a different perspective in, you know, business and his work with Kravis um, at Claremont McKenna in California. And so really wanted to have his voice. And I know Dan has this great story, which I'm going to let him tell about um, Jay and kind of that connection also to the book. Yeah, so with, with Jay, it was one of those things where uh, when I was writing my dissertation, I was looking for 
for a framework. I know I had wanted to um, to study uh, instructional strategies in, uh, in in leadership education. You know, I uh, my major professor was uh, was this guy uh, Jim Eisen. He had co-authored uh, this seminal article on uh, active learning that uh, you know was in a, one of those Harry readers. I think in the late '80s or, or early '90s. Uh, Eisen and Bonwell. It's been cited like a, a couple trillion times. It, it would seem and. He had taught. Uh, he taught a lot of the courses I took at, um, at USF, and had run their center for 21st century teaching and and all this stuff. And so um, he said, "Hey, great! You know, you want to, um, you, you know, you want to 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 do this uh, this project on uh, you know on leadership education, and and you need to have a framework um, of." you know, this, of what it looks like, you know, what are the different categories, what are the different instructional strategies, you know, if you're going to survey, you know, these people on what type of uh, uh, teaching and learning that they're doing, you need to have to base this on something. And I came across this book called Learning to Lead um, that was written in the early 90s, 92, I think, by, by Jay Conger. Um, and he had very, you know, insightfully, um, you know, categorized um, leadership education or leadership development uh, programming, you know, very distinctly um, through, uh, you know, through, through, through four, four very distinct um, categories. So we kind of had this, you know, this matrix. Uh, he said, hey, you know, the, these, there's these approaches to leadership development, and they fall under either personal growth, conceptual understanding, feedback, or skill building. Um, and there, later some work was done by Scott Allen, um, and he wrote with this uh, gentleman, Nathan Hartman, over at John Carroll. And actually, Scott Allen became a big mentor in my life, um, too. Um, and, uh, and there's a reason I'm bringing him into it that I'll, I'll share in just, just a moment. Uh, but uh, so Scott had actually written an article in, the, uh, in 2009 and uh, 2008 with, with Nathan uh, about particular instructional strategies that fell into those four categories. Um, and so I reached out to both Jay and, and Scott when I was a doc student, and I was so scared uh, because, you know, I, I guess we are at that, at that point in our life, uh, you know, to say, hey, can I use your models um, as part of my dissertation work, you know, and, and waiting for those emails to come back, you know, not knowing, you know, I'm asking these faculty members if they're going to let me use their, you know, it's like asking somebody to use their, their survey instrument. Um, and not knowing what the outcome is going to be. And, and they were both so gracious. They responded within a day. Um, and I was so excited that they did. Um, and so um, we uh, had an opportunity to, uh, to then uh, put together a uh, special issue for the Journal of Leadership Studies. Um, and Scott Allen had put this together. Um, and he said, you know, I, I want you to look at... Uh, the different uh, sources of learning that happen in various types of uh, programs uh, and leadership development, um, and he said, and I want you to, to see if Jay will write one of these uh, write one of these articles uh, about this about where leadership education and programming is is now. He should be your dream author, you know. And I was again terrified, even though I had that prior uh, connection with him. And he responded quickly. Of course, I'd be glad to. You know, we had some great conversations. Um, and then was able to find him at a uh, at an ILA conference in San Diego uh, about a year later. Um, he was speaking at a at a session, and I found him and said, "Hey, you know, are you doing anything for lunch?" Because uh, it was right before uh, the session was right before lunch, and and he said, "I'd be glad to 
glad to, uh, to take you out for lunch and um, got a picture with him. Um, and when we were at the, uh, we had a great conversation. I had brought, I knew he was speaking, so I'd actually brought his book with me, the Living to Lead book. Got an autograph from him. Um, and as we were sitting at lunch at the restaurant at the hotel, uh, Scott Allen and, and, and someone else walked by. Uh, I said, hey, Scott, I said, I, I got to get the three of you, and three of us. I said, my dissertation happened because of the two of you, and it's so funny that you all are in the same space and time um, at this restaurant here and at this hotel. Um, and so as we were working towards, towards the book and I stayed in touch with, with Jay, we would you know, kind of correspond a couple times a year. Um, I said, hey, you know, you've had a huge impact on what I've been doing here. Would you be interested in writing a forward? Uh, so it was really this... It was an academic crush turned into a <laughs> turned into a you know a mentorship of of sorts and um, you know when he agreed to write the forward it was just just an amazing uh, and I was so gracious to him for for doing so um, and so you know that that coupled with Susan who you know I always looked up to for what she what she did uh, for the field and uh, that you know that was one of the first books that I mentioned I used uh, when I started teaching was the Exploring Leadership book that she was the lead, lead author on and I later found out just, you know, how much she contributed to the work that I was doing and, and how much I learned from her kind of without ever meeting her, uh, but then having an opportunity to, you know, at conferences over the years. Uh, I couldn't be more thankful to, to the two of them for taking the time to write such interesting and, and, and provocative forwards. Awesome. Awesome. So, I uh, wanted to, to wrap up here with this question. So one of, one of y'all's observations in, in the preparatory, in our prep call, preparatory, uh, was there was so much out there that needed to be organized. And so I, I, I totally agree and uh, think the organization process is a real lasting contribution of this book. And so, um, Kathy, maybe we, we can start with you. What was, what was y'all's method and, and how did y'all think about going about organizing what I have oftentimes referred to as a deep pool of student leadership information that's out there in the world. I do like your um, saying the deep pool because we definitely found that, right? I mean, and as any book goes through many evolutions, this absolutely did as far as, you know, the different how do you section it off, like what should go first, what, you know, we had, I remember having a long conversation about we don't want assessment to be one of the last chapters because, it always is, and it should be actually one of the first chapters because you need to think about assessment as you're developing a program, and it shouldn't be an add-on, right? So even, you know, that organization was really um, interesting to think about, you know, as we were trying to put it together. But we did, we, you know, it landed on these sections, and really one was just opening up to talk about that leadership can be taught, and it really was, you know, really looking at, um, you know, some of the other literature that really talked about, yes, leadership can be taught, but then also how are we educators? So not just that it can be taught, but then how are we not only preparing ourselves and what resources, but how are with our identity and, and so forth. And then really digging into this whole section two is about how are we designing these opportunities for leadership learning so again, shifting from like the education to the learning piece, and and I know that, and um, you know, episode two we'll start talking about some of these in the, the future episodes. But really, then thinking about how are we designing opportunities curricularly and co-curricularly. So 
thinking through what are the multiple contexts that we have to think about, the complexities, not just, oh, did we um, make sure that we had the classroom reserved or the syllabus printed, but, you know, what are these other connections in that? And then we decided to really think about the actual um, pedagogy, that the instructional strategies, and then also how are you assessing learning, and how does that show up in both spaces, the curricular and co-curricular. And so it was, it was a deep pool. I mean, we actually had to cut a lot because of we had so much. So that deep pool, it just kept, we kept finding stuff, and we kept adding, and then we're like, well, we can't have a book that's 700 pages, and so we needed to condense it, which actually is, we are working on a companion manual to provide some additional information for folks because we had so much. And so that organization was, I, I remember towards, you know, probably, I don't know, about six months before we actually turned it into the publisher, we were like, we need to rework this completely. And it was really funny to have those conversations about what is the flow and how do you organize so that it is digestible for even brand new folks who are coming into leadership education. How do you find the information you're looking for and how do you actually able to take it in, because I know sometimes when I get, there's a lot of information, I kind of shut down a little bit because I don't know how to take it in, and so that was something that we had worked on, um, is thinking through our own journeys, and actually had a lot of great feedback, you know, you had, your question was about the method, about organizing, you know, so besides the conversation using our own, we did reach out to folks and say, so what are we missing, what, you know, how would this flow be, what makes sense, and so got a lot of great feedback from, you know, new professionals, newer professionals, and how, um, and educators, and how this could, could potentially look, and fill that, that void that there is. Perfect. Dan, any, any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was about what, you know, I guess going back to some of the what I said earlier of what everything that I wish that I had known when I, uh, you know, was handed that textbook and told your course starts in a couple of weeks, you know, what resources, you know, what, where do you go for professional development? Uh, what do I, where can I turn if I, you know, need an activity for a certain, you know, uh, subject or a class that I'm teaching or how can I get better at, you know, debriefing or, um, you know, what type of leadership programs are there? What is the curriculum you know, look like what is what what should be in a course? What are some models of good programs? You know, what um, who are these people that teach leadership? Uh, can leadership be taught? You know, what's what's this assessment assessment thing? You know, how do I do it at the course level? How do I do it at the institutional level? It's you know, there's so many responsibilities that we have as leadership educators, um, but we often don't have that that resource to turn to to uh, you know to, to to find information on, on how to go about doing it. And so those were, you know, some of those value propositions was, you know, or, or were that, you know, we uh, wanted to make sure that all of those were, were included and, you know, we really wanted to situate it, um, you know, with, by setting the stage in, in that way. And Kathy's right, you know, we did spend a lot of time going, well, what should go first? Or should this be first? Should that be first? You know, um, and really thinking kind of, you know, from a backwards design standpoint of, you know, all right, here's all the resources and everything, you know, from the educator, you know, standpoint as an, as an individual. Um, and then, you know, from a course design, curriculum design, assessment design, uh, I mean, looking at all the research we could find on programs and, um, and assessment, and then moving from there to that final section, which is, you know, a, a good half of the book, which is 
all the pedagogy, um, you know, and and we just organized, you know, everything we could, you know, trying to just grab the, you know, from the, uh, a hodgepodge of so many different uh, resources and literature, and um, it's a deep pool, like you said, and, and we, we, we gave it a, that old college try <laughs> of, of, uh, of organizing it. Um, and, and making it something that we we're proud of and, and that we think will, will benefit the field. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, uh, we will we will be back with uh, with more content and uh, and a few more episodes coming up on the role of leadership educators transforming learning with uh, with Kathy and Dan. So thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. And thanks so much to Drs. Kathy Guthrie and Dan Jenkins. Uh, in case you're wondering, the role of leadership educators transforming learning is available now, um, and you can find it at you know uh, I was able to track it down via America's favorite online emporium, Amazon.com, but there I'm sure are other outlets as well. You can also get more information about the KCA and our various social media outlets, including Facebook.com/backslash/sa_lead, on Twitter at NASPA_SLPKC, and on Instagram at NASPA_SLPKC. KC. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email over to nastaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Kathy and Dan, thanks so much. Looking forward to, looking forward to the rest of this process. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Miles.